Exodus 31 and the verse 1. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, See, I have called by name Bezaleel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God, in wisdom and in understanding and in knowledge, and in all manner of workmanship, to devise cunning works, to work in gold and in silver and in brass, and in cutting of stones to set them, and in carving of timber to work in all manner of workmanship. And certainly when you read those verses, you can see how highly skilled this man was, this man Bezaliel. And then we turn to the Gospel of Luke and the first chapter, and we'll read there beginning at the verse number 11. And there appeared unto him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled, and fear fell upon him. And the angel said unto him, Fear not, Zacharias, for thy prayer is heard, and thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son, and thou shalt call his name John. And thou shalt have joy and gladness, and many shall rejoice at his birth. For he shall be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. And he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost, even from his mother's womb. And many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God, and he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elias, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the, of the just, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Amen. And God will bless the reading of these verses to all of our hearts. These verses that I've just read in Luke chapter 1 introduce us to John the Baptist. John the Baptist holds a very important place in the Word of God. He does so in that he was the forerunner of the Messiah. These are basic uh, points about John the Baptist that we all know, if we have any understanding of the Bible at all. We are aware of who he was, the forerunner of the Messiah. And in that role, it was John's ministry to prepare the way for the Messiah's entrance into his public ministry. If you look there in this reading in Luke chapter 1 at verse 17, the opening words are very important. It says, And he, and that's John the Baptist, he shall go before him. And that, of course, is Christ. And so the verb there that's translated go means to go forth. And so it's saying that there would be a point in time when John the Baptist would go forth. He would as we know from the New Testament, he would be in the shadows. He would be actually in a hidden uh, position, as it were, right through until that moment when he stepped out and he went forth as the forerunner of the Messiah. And that's the sense of those words, he shall go forth before him. And again, the latter two words there before him signify the idea and the truth of one who acts as a forerunner. In the main context of this verse, here Luke 1.17, John's forerunning role is presented to us. In other words, what he actually was to do as the forerunner 
of the Lord. And the answer, of course, is that he would prepare a people through his ministry who would embrace the Savior when he would appear. Notice the words in verse 17. It goes on to say, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the, the wisdom of the just, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And notice those latter words, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Here, in a nutshell, you have what is meant by John being the forerunner. He was going forth to prepare a people, to make them ready for the Lord, to introduce them to New Testament matters, to truths that had to be understood, who the Messiah is and what he was coming to do and so forth. All of this was in the remit that John was given by God as the forerunner of the Messiah. Turn please to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3, and let's just notice here uh, a particular example of John laboring, preaching, and what happened as a consequence. Matthew and the chapter 3 and the verse number 5, it says, Then went out to him Jerusalem and all Judea, and all the region round about Jordan, and were baptized of him in Jordan, confessing their sins. In those verses we are given an insight into the impact of the ministry of John the Baptist. The language here signifies that a sizable company of people flocked to the ministry of John even as he labored in the wilderness. Notice that in verse number 5. Then went out to him Jerusalem and all Judea. It says they went out to heaven. Where was he? Well, he was in the wilderness, as the first part of the chapter would tell us. He was, uh, verse number 1 makes that statement. In those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea. And when we think about the wilderness, it could mean two things. It could mean a very desolate place where nobody lives, no inhabitant whatsoever, or it could refer to a place beyond cities and large towns, but where people actually did live. But the interesting thing is that John went to the wilderness that would have been sparsely populated. And yet the striking thing is that the people of the cities went out to him. Look again at verse 5. Then went out to him Jerusalem and all Judea. Now there's the capital city, Jerusalem. And there is the land of Judea that contained many, many cities, large cities and populated places. And we're told here in this statement that all these people went out to John. They were drawn to him. He's out there in the wilderness. He's preaching, maybe to a few at the start. Well, that's where the Lord sends them. And then multitudes are drawn to where the man of God actually is laboring. We don't know why that was the pattern that God uh, chose to adopt in terms of this man's ministry, why he sent him into the wilderness first, and so forth. But one thing we do know is that there was a reason as to why the people left the cities and went to the wilderness regions and uh, listened to the ministry of John the Baptist. And the reason, of course, is what you find going back to Luke chapter 1 as we dwell on this man, John the Baptist, and that is his ministry was accompanied by unusual power. 
In John, or in Luke 1, 15, remember what we read there, what was said, He shall be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. And he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost, even from his mother's womb. And many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God. And we have a reference there to the power of the Holy Spirit resting upon God's servant, upon the forerunner, the Messiah. And the result was that many were turned to the Lord their God. So why did the people go out? And what was God doing when He sent John to the wilderness? The people went out because here's a man who had got the power of God, and they felt the drawing of that power that he had. And therefore the Lord was showing by sending John to the wilderness first, and having likely established his ministry there, that he doesn't need large cities, or he doesn't need the organization of religion, because remember that Jerusalem was the seat of religion in those days among the Jews, and they were proud of it, and they reveled in it, and they had all their rites and their ceremonies, and yet there was nothing of God there. There was nothing of the Messiah there. And so, the Lord chooses the wilderness. He puts His forerunner there, and then He sends the people out to Him to show that He's sovereign, to show that He's in charge, to show that the power of the Holy Ghost can draw people to where the Word is being preached, no matter where it is, and especially when you see it in the wilderness region, it really gives you an insight into the drawing power of the Holy Ghost. There are two things I want to say about John the Baptist. This is really a kind of a character study. I'm going to do some character studies in the Bible class over the coming weeks, but in the will of the Lord, but we'll start here with John the Baptist. He just came to my mind, and I thought it would be a good place to start. He's an outstanding character with regard to the ministry of our Lord. Two things I want you to notice. Number one, his power, and we've already been touching on that. We'll deal with it in more detail now. And then secondly, his purity. And I want to really show you about this man in his own personal purity or holiness of life. So, we've already noticed his power in these opening remarks. He was a man with power because he was filled with the Holy Spirit. In verse 15 there again in Luke 1, it says, He shall be great in the sight of the Lord. Great in the sight of the Lord. That's a reference to spiritual greatness. Not great in the sense of being well-known or great in the sense of having tremendous abilities, although no doubt John had great abilities as God's man, but as great in the sight of the Lord in that sense of spiritual greatness through the infilling of the Holy Spirit. And so you notice the closing words of verse uh, number 15, where it says, "...he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost from his mother's womb. He shall be filled with the Holy Ghost." And then look at the opening words of verse 17. And he shall go before him. I referred to that earlier. That's John will go before the Messiah. He's the forerunner, remember. So verse 17, he shall go before him, for Christ, in the power and the spirit and power of Elias. And that's Elijah. And so the Lord draws in this character called Elijah whom we meet in 1 Kings and 2 Kings and 
who was one of the greatest prophets to ever live in this world and serve the true God. Elijah was a Spirit-filled man. And that's what's meant by those words. John would go before Christ in the spirit and power of Elias. In other words, as Elijah ministered in the Holy Ghost, so John, the forerunner of Christ, was going to minister in the Holy Ghost. Now, I want you to go to 1 Kings and chapter 18. So please turn with me there, and we'll come back to Luke 1. But uh, 1 Kings 18 and verse number 12. I notice something here. It's a statement made by a man called Obadiah, who has been sent by Ahab to find Elijah, and he comes to where Elijah is, and he speaks with him. And Obadiah, of course, is a man of God. That's true. We certainly can see that from what's said about him in 1 Kings. But notice what he says here. Uh, well, first of all, it's really in response to what Elijah told him to do. Look at verse 11, 1 Kings eighteen eleven, And now thou sayest, Behold, uh, go, go tell thy Lord. So Elijah had told Obadiah, Go and tell Ahab I am here. The time has come for a confrontation. So go and tell him I am now here. And so, go tell thy Lord, behold, Elijah is here. So, Obadiah is recounting what Elijah told him to say to Ahab. And here is Obadiah's feelings about that. Verse 12, It shall come to pass, as soon as I am gone from thee, that the Spirit of the Lord shall carry thee whether I know not. And there is a reference to the fact that Elijah was a man under the control of the Holy Spirit. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit did this with Elijah in a very powerful, supernatural way. He could just take him from A to B in an instant. But the point that's made is, Elijah is a man who knows the power of the Spirit in his life and in his ministry. That's what is being said when it was said of John the Baptist, he shall go before the Messiah in the spirit and power of Elias. You're seeing something here of that man's power. I mean, Elijah's power. But go to 2 Kings now, 2 Kings 2 and verse number 9. And this is at the time when Elijah is about to be taken up to heaven. And so Elisha is there with him. Elisha is the successor to Elijah as a prophet and they're both at the river Jordan, and something remarkable happens. So 2 Kings 2, verse number 9, it came to pass. When they were gone over, the Elijah said unto Elisha, Ask what I shall do for thee before I be taken away from thee. Elisha said, I pray thee, let a double portion of thy spirit be upon me. And then verse number 15, and when the sons of the prophets which were to view at Jericho saw him, they said, The Spirit of Elijah doth rest on Elisha. And so we have another reference here to Elijah and the fact that the Spirit was upon him. And it says there in verse 9, A double portion of thy Spirit. That's not a reference to Elijah's human spirit. That's a reference to the Spirit that was on him. That's the Holy Ghost. And then again, verse 15, uh, where you read, 
uh, the people actually testifying the spirit of Elijah. And again, it's not the human spirit. It says, the spirit of Elijah doth rest in Elisha. It couldn't be the human spirit. Because by this time, Elijah's gone. His soul, in fact, his whole being, he's been caught up to heaven. And so his spirit's in heaven. I mean, Elijah's own human spirit. And this can only be the Holy Spirit. But he's called the spirit of Elijah because he wrought so mightily in Elijah. And we know something of the tremendous ministry that man had as he served God in his day and his time, his boldness, his power, his uh, miracles, etc. He was a mighty man. And so we learn something of what is meant about Christ's forerunner when it was said in Luke one seventeen, He shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elias or Elijah. You can't have power without the Holy Ghost. The two go together, the spirit and power of Elias. And so, John the Baptist's power, the power that he had was the power of the Spirit, that is clearly stated. And then it is verified by this reference to Elijah. And we have traced something of Elijah there in First and Second Kings, and I trust that you've been following the... Um, the exposition of these verses just to get a hold on your own minds of what is meant by that uh, warding, the spirit and power of Elias. But I read earlier with you this morning from Exodus 31. I want you to go there now. Returning to Exodus chapter 31, where I did read. And here's another interesting person, this man called Bezaliel, who stands in the Old Testament Scriptures as a pointer to John the Baptist. Let me show you this. So Exodus 31, and the verse number 1, down to verse number, well, down to verse 3 is all we need to look at here at the moment. So have your Bibles open to Exodus 31. And we read of the man Bezaliel, he's named in verse 2. Bezaliel stands as a parallel with John the Baptist in a number of ways. Regarding the record of Scripture about Spirit-filled men, Bezaliel and John the Baptist are parallels. Let me explain what I mean by that. Here in this verse, verse number 3 of Exodus 31, it says this, I have filled him with the Spirit of God. Then we read in Luke 1 about John the Baptist, filled with the Holy Ghost, even from his mother's womb. These two men stand in tandem, or they stand in parallel in the Bible, because Bezaliel in the Old Testament and John the Baptist in the New Testament are the first men of whom the Scriptures testify that they were filled with the Holy Ghost. And we've just noticed it. Now, it doesn't mean that there were no other men before them who were filled with the Spirit. If you take Bezaliel and go then back into the early parts of Exodus or into Genesis, uh, you will find that there were men who were obviously filled with the Spirit of God. In fact, it talks about Joseph and Pharaoh himself said, can we find a man like this, that is Joseph, in whom the Spirit of the Lord is? But the actual reference to the infilling of the Spirit is what I am talking about. 
God filling a man with the Holy Ghost. The first man in the Bible is Bezaliel, of whom you read those words. And that's striking. And you'll see why in a moment or two. And then John the Baptist is the first person in the New Testament of whom this is said, that he was filled with the Holy Ghost. Now the Lord, we're leaving the Lord out of it because obviously he was filled with the Spirit at the baptism uh, there at Jordan, as you read in Matthew and so on. But taking men, John the Baptist is the first man of whom the New Testament records he's filled with the Holy Ghost. So these two men, one in the Old Testament era, the other in the New Testament era, are the first two men of whom this is actually said. There has to be significance to that. So that's one thing. Then the second thing about John the Baptist, or Bezaliel and John the Baptist, is this. Both men were forerunners. Bezaliel was the forerunner of Moses. John the Baptist was the forerunner of Jesus Christ, as we know. But in what way can we show or prove that Bezaliel was the forerunner of Moses? Well, what did Bezaliel do? He prepared the tabernacle in which Moses ministered, in which the people gathered. Bezaliel's a man set apart by God who actually builds that tabernacle. Now, he has helpers and so on. You'll read about them. But the point is, he is the man who is, who is actually named by the Lord and chosen by the Lord to be the builder of the tabernacle in which Moses then ministered and worshipped and served God and brought revelation to the people of Israel and so on. And, of course, John the Baptist prepared a people, as we've already seen, for the Lord, among whom he uh, worked and, and among whom he dwelt. And you see, those people were the Lord's tabernacle when he was on this earth. Where does Christ dwell? He dwells in the hearts of his people. He dwells among his people. So Bezaliel prepares a tabernacle for Moses where he will minister and God's people will gather. And John the Baptist prepares a people for the Lord. Both men are forerunners. And then both men, thirdly, are men of outstanding spiritual character. Let's just look closely there at Exodus 31 at Bezaliel. And notice some details about him. And I want to give you these because you'll not see them on the surface of the text, but let me explain to you what I mean. Take Bezaliel's name and his descent, in other words, his pedigree, from his father and grandfather and so on. You have different details there about him. If you look at verse number 2, it says, See, I have called by name Bezaliel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. So there are four names there. Bezaliel, Uri, Hur, Judah. And there is Bezaliel's name and his descent. Bezaliel, his own name, means standing in the shadow of God. Standing in the shadow of God. There's a lot of significance to that. For example, it indicates that in Bezaliel's life, God was first. 
If you're standing in somebody's shadow, that person is before you. And so, he's standing in the shadow of God. That means that in Bezaliel's life, God is first. Isn't that a vital lesson for anybody who wants to serve the Lord, that the Lord will be first? You see, some people don't like to stand in the shadow of others. You know, we often use that term that uh, so-and-so came along and he stood in the shadow of his predecessor. And sometimes the successor doesn't like to be in the shadow of the person who was ahead of him or before him. That second person would like to be in the forefront and doesn't like to be in the shadow. So we use the term, he's standing in the shadow of whoever. Well, there are certain people you wouldn't like to be in their shadow, by the way. But uh, we do use the term, don't we? And we know what it means. It means that the other person's first and you're second. So, Bezaliel was quite happy to stand in the shadow of God. That's the meaning of his name. That's a wonderful name to have, standing in the shadow of God. It indicates that the Lord was first. Furthermore, it indicates that Bezaliel lived close to God. If you're going to be in somebody's shadow, well, you're not going to be a mile away. You're going to be right up close. And we know how a shadow works. If you're standing in somebody's shadow, well, the sun's behind that person and casts his or her shadow, and you could find yourself actually standing in the shadow of the other person. And you know, what, you know what that's like. It could even be a, a rock or a tree or whatever. And in a hot day, well, we don't have too much problems this way, but in a hot day, you like a shadow sometimes to get into the shadow and feel a bit of uh, covering from the heat. And you know what I'm talking about here. You know what the sense of this is. And therefore, Bezaliel was living close to the Lord. Furthermore, standing in the shadow of God, that means God's presence is all around him. Standing in the shadow of God, he's protected. And so, his name signifies a lot. And I quickly mention these little details. Then he's the son of Uri, tells us here in verse number 2 of Exodus 31. The word Uri, that's Bezaliel's father, but that name means light or enlightened. Now, just think about this. His name means standing in the shadow of God, and when there's a shadow, then there's a little uh, uh, gloom. You're not, you're not in the broad daylight. But the point is, he's the son of Uri, which means light or enlightened, as I've said. That indicates that Bezaliel, while he's standing in the shadow of God, he's not walking in darkness. He, rather, he's under divine guidance because he is the son of Uri. He's the son of light. That's the spiritual sense of that. Then he's the grandson of Hur, H-U-R. And that's the name of another man. There's his grandfather. And the name Hur is found in different places. If you'll turn back in Exodus to Exodus 17, you find it for the first time. And you know the story there, I'm sure some of you at least. Exodus 17 and the verse number 12 and, well, verse 10 is where you first find the name Hur. Exodus 17, 10, it says, 
Joshua did as Moses had said to him and fought with Amalek, and Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Then verse uh, number 12, Moses' hands were heavy, and he took a stone and put it under him, and he sat thereon. And Aaron and Hur stayed up his hands, the one on the one side and the other on the other side, and his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And do you know, you've, you've heard this preach, you've read this yourselves, I'm sure many of you, and what you have here is a picture of praying men. Moses and Aaron and Hur are on the mount, and Moses is interceding for Israel as they're under attack from their enemies, and he is helped, he is stayed by uh, two men, one on either side of them, who hold up his hands, and his hands are steady because he has got praying men on either side of him. So what do we find about her, therefore? He is a praying man. And he is Bezaliel's grandfather. Grandfathers, pray for your grandchildren. Pray that they will be men of God, because undoubtedly her would have played, prayed for Bezaliel. I believe he's still alive in Exodus 31, because he's named there. Uh, you, you just go back there with me and look at it carefully. It says, See, I have called, verse 2, I have called by name Bezaliel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And when the word See starts a sentence like this. It could also be read, Behold. And the Lord's drawing attention to Bezaliel, but he's also drawing attention to his progenitors. And you've got Uri and you've got her. In other words, it would signify, I suggest to you that these men were still alive. And so the father's still alive and the grandfather's still alive. That is Uri and her. And they undoubtedly it influenced Bezaliel's life mightily in his own time and preparing him for what the Lord would have him to do. And then you've got the name Judah. He's of the tribe of Judah. And why would God put that in there? Well, to identify him as from being that, from being that, from, of being from that tribe. But why else? Because of what Judah means. It means praise. Judah means praise. What does that teach us about Bezaliel? Well, I would again put it this way, I suggest to you, here's a man who is rejoicing that he's privileged to serve God. He, he's rejoicing that he has a place in the service of God. And so all those little details, you bring them together and you can see that Bezaliel was a man of outstanding spiritual character. A man who stands in the shadow of God. A man who is a son of light. A man who is the grandson of a praying man. A man from a tribe that signifies praise and gladness. All that adds up to give us some uh, view, a very clear view of the kind of man Bazaliel was. And that's the kind of person you ought to be or you should want to be to have all those features in your life. What about John the Baptist? Is he an outstanding man in terms of spiritual character? Remember, we're paralleling these two men because the Bible does it for us and we're simply drawing out what is actually there. Well, turn to John 3. 
As we think about John the Baptist, and let's just notice something there that indicates the kind of man he was. John chapter 3 and verse number 29. And here's a time when John is challenged by the unbelieving Jews about Christ. And what do you find in John's response? Well, we will see. John chapter 3 and the verse number 27. We'll actually start there. He says, John answered and said, A man can receive nothing. And that's a reference to spiritual things, except it be given him from heaven. Ye yourselves bear witness of me, or sorry, ye yourselves bear witness that I said, I am not the Christ, I am not the Messiah, but that I am sent before him. He's the forerunner, remember. Then he says this, He that hath the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom which standeth and heareth him rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. And he's bringing a little parable there. He talks about a bride and the bridegroom. He talks about the best man in the marriage scene. He talks about himself as the friend of the bridegroom. And so notice those little details. This is a parable. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom. In other words, on the day of the marriage, the bride belongs to the bridegroom. She doesn't belong to the best man. What's he? Well, he's called here the friend of the bridegroom. He's there to help the bridegroom. He's there to assist him. He's there to enable him to go through the day and get his bride securely married to him. You young men who are looking for a a best man someday, this is the kind of man you want. And so that's certainly what it's all about here. It's about the groom and his best man and the bride. And the bride doesn't belong to the best man. How does John see himself here? He's the best man. He is the one who's assisting Christ. And what does he say? He says, uh, just read the whole verse again, 29. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom which standeth and heareth him rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This my joy therefore is fulfilled. He must increase, he must increase, but I must decrease. What do you notice there? You notice the very same thing as we saw at Bazaliel. John the Baptist is standing in the shadow of Christ. Christ is the preeminent one. He's the first one in John's life. And he's very happy about that. John the Baptist, of course, had a praying father and mother, just taking that matter, but her, who was um, Bazaliel's grandfather, a praying man, John the Baptist is a man who was a man of praise. He actually says it here. He says, I rejoice greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. He says, my joy therefore is fulfilled. What's he saying? When I see people coming to Christ, it gives me joy. That's what he's saying. Because that's the context again. The Jews had arrived on the scene and they were, they were ribbing John the Baptist. They were criticizing him. And if you look back to verse 26, you'll see what I mean. 
They came unto John and said unto him, Rabbi, oh, they're very polite. They call him teacher or rabbi. He that was with thee beyond Jordan, to whom thou bearest witness, behold, the same baptizeth, and all men come to him. There was the dagger thrust. John, everybody's going after Christ. And they thought they could get John all annoyed or even angry. What they're trying to do is drive in a wedge between John the Baptist and the Lord. The devil wants to do that all the time. He wants to drive in wedges between Christians. He wants to drive in wedges between preachers. He wants one to think, I'm, I'm better than the other, or whatever people think in a carnal, sinful way. That's the work of the devil. It's not the work of the Holy Spirit. But John's a Spirit-filled man, and he's not one bit annoyed that everybody's going after Christ because Remember, he's the forerunner, and he wants everybody to go to Christ. And then he brings a little parable. He says, I'm only the best man. I'm only the helper of the bridegroom. And I rejoice when I hear the bridegroom's voice, and people are now turning to him and following him. He says, my joy is fulfilled. And he says, he must increase. I must decrease. You know, that verse If you think about it, I mean, verse 30, he must increase, but I must decrease. That is one of the greatest um, texts you could ever have if you were a preacher or explaining something to somebody of this nature. It's one of the greatest texts you could ever have for the doctrine of sanctification. What is sanctification? Christ increasing us decreasing. That's sanctification. And that's what John is saying here. He says, Christ is increasing. Christ is getting all the glory and all the preeminence, and I want that. And I just want to decrease. I want to fade away. I want to be in the shadow of the Lord. I don't want any of the glory. I don't want any of the praise. I want Him to have it all. My friend, that's true sanctification. You know, you'll meet people who, and I've met them, and they give, they only give the impression that they're really holy. And they're, 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 they're powerfully sanctified, these people. And they're as filled with pride as they can be. They're proud, and this is the ironic thing, they're proud of their sanctification, which tells me immediately that they know very little about sanctification. Because where there's real sanctification, Christ is increasing and man is decreasing. And so, this tells me that John, John was a man who was spiritually great. He's just like Bezaliel. And that's what really stands out about about both those men. That's why there are parallels in the Bible. First two men of whom it is said they're filled with the Spirit. And all these features about their character and their behavior and their aspirations and so on, they are godly men, they are Christ-like men. Spiritual power, therefore, and I'm still dealing with John the Baptist's power, so I'll have to come back to the aspect of his purity in another study because I didn't even get near it here. But 
John the Baptist's power signified that he was full of the Holy Spirit. That is one of the hallmarks of the infilling of the Holy Spirit. It is power. That comes out clearly in him, in Bezalel, comes out clearly in many other people as we make our way through the Word of God. You remember what the Lord said to the disciples before He left them? He said, Tarry in Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. He said to them a little later, as you find in Acts 1, Ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. He then said to them in the same chapter, Acts 1, that when the Holy Ghost shall come upon you, ye shall receive power. And then in chapter 2 of Acts, to the same men, or of the same men we read, that the Holy Ghost descended, and what was the outcome? They had power. And so in terms of service, this is the mark of the unfilling of the Spirit. Yes, where we are under the control of the Spirit and filled with the Spirit and walk in the Spirit, there will be humility, there will be brokenness, there will be uh, a desire for the Lord to be glorified, and He get the first place and all of that. But we're noticing here the issue of power. Power by the Holy Ghost. And, oh, brethren and sisters, this is the need of the day in your life and in my life, in the church of God, in the work of God, is to have that power that comes as a result of the working of the Spirit, the filling of the Spirit, the moving of the Spirit in our hearts. That is the first great feature of the character of John the Baptist. He was a man with power, but then he was a man with purity in his life. And we're going to see that. We'll have to come back to that because time here is virtually gone. And so we'll leave it there today, but we'll return to that at another point. And may the Lord bless the Word to you all, and I trust that you'll be encouraged just to follow through and look at these thoughts again in your own minds and hearts and pray that the Lord will work this in your life. Let us all let us all pray. Father in heaven, we bow before Thee, and we wait at Thy feet in our Saviour's name. O Lord, how we pray that Thou wilt give us men and women like this. O Lord, come upon us all. May we not be content, may we not rest, unless and until we know the infilling of the Spirit, that it be our constant prayer. Lord, may the power of God be upon us in our gatherings, in our lives, as we walk among others. Lord, we pray that we will have the Holy Spirit resting upon us mightily as He rested and filled, rested upon and filled John the Baptist and Bezaliel and Elijah too. Lord, we thank Thee for the teaching of Scripture in these matters, and may we hunger and thirst for Thee. Here as we pray, go with us now today. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.